Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that gets the real stories behind the people and the music of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Today, after many episodes where we've mentioned his work, I am delighted to finally be introducing film composer Howard Shaw to the podcast. I'm joined by Howard, who's over in New York, and I'm sitting here at Glyndebourne backstage. So please forgive us if there's uh, any noises. There's lots of uh, different things happening and getting ready for the performance tonight. But I'm joined with principal percussionist Andy Barkley and principal trumpet player Paul Beniston. So lovely to have you here, Paul, Andy and Howard. Hi, good to be here. Hi, Howard. Good to see you. Good to see you. Now, we are going to be discussing the one and only Lord of the Rings soundtrack composed by Howard and recorded by the LPO. So I'll start with you first, Howard. Where did it all begin for you and the LPO? The first recording I did was in 1986. It was The Fly. And uh, I was introduced to the London Phil. We recorded it in Barnes at Olympic Studio. And then from 86 to 2001, 2001 was the recording of Fellowship of the Ring. In those 15 years, I probably did 10 or 12 recordings, three or four or five days each. And during that process, I developed the sound and the orchestrations for Fellowship of the Ring. And so talk to me a little bit about the process of starting to build the themes. Was it the fact that you've heard bits of the LPO or where do you start with writing for Lord of the Rings? One bar at a time. (laughs) I'm in my studio now. I write music every morning. I write with pencil and paper. When I was working on the score for Fellowship of the Ring, initially, at that point, I was doing the composition in a five, six-line sketch, and I'd write about 50 bars a day for film music. When I'm writing concert music, it's a much slower process. I'm probably writing about eight or ten bars a day. And so I break the piece down, and you know, as long as I'm writing composition and the pencil is on the page, then I'm composing and eventually it accumulates. You just go one one bar at a time. I absolutely love that. I think that's going to be a tip that we'll take away from us. Um, I'll go to you first, Andy. How does Howard write for your instruments? Really well. I mean, it's, sometimes it looks very simple on the page, what he's written. Especially in Lord of the Rings, there wasn't anything that we thought, I want to take this home and practice it. But it's all about the colour and the sound painting in a way. You know, we we used a lot of different instruments and some of it was experimenting on the day. I mean, Howard had a very clear idea of what he wanted, but sometimes we had to sort of mess around with different instruments and different mallets and and things to get the right sound. So it's deceptively difficult in a way, sometimes. But mixing it in with the overall sound, there's some really powerful colours in Lord of the Rings, you know. Mm. I watched it, one of the great joys of lockdown, as I did a, a whole stint with my son, you know, all three films and extended DVDs. We did it over a couple of days. And, uh, you know, the colours that the orchestra makes uh, that Howard created was breathtaking, you know, over the scope of the whole film. So 
Yeah, it's really enjoyable because you weren't sitting there sweating about billions of notes, but you were sweating about colours and, and sounds. Which is beautiful because music really does paint pictures, especially when it's going along with film. That's the Some of his other that. films are hard to play. <laughs> Let me put that. We'll touch <laughs> on that Lord of the Rings, it wasn't, you, didn't, you didn't need loads of xylophone solos in my Lord of the Rings. It was, it was more sort of earthy and gothic. And, and how about for you, Paul? How does Howard write for the brass and, and the trumpets? Yeah, similarly, I mean, sometimes it seems that... Writing idiomatically seems to be a dying art, you know, but it's sort of working out what's, what a trumpet does well, better than other instruments, and what a, a flute does and what a violin does. And I think Howard absolutely nails that. When I'm playing his music, I do feel that no other instrument could play it better than the trumpet. So it is really, Howard, about knowing the instruments and, and how they would respond together. Um, we hear quite a lot here on LPO Stage about the idea of collaborating, sometimes a conductor with the rest of the orchestra or a composer with the orchestra. How do you collaborate with the percussion, for example? I orchestrate the score myself. And when I'm on the podium, I'm just realising the sound I'm hearing from the page and adjusting from the podium so it's I can create a very intimate relationship between the players and what I've orchestrated and I do a lot of changes from the podium because of that so that's how I create that collaboration really it's from the page to the podium. In rehearsals I guess an orchestra that's used to sort of sitting down playing through and then ready for the concert this sort of stopping and starting and, oh, can we try this sound? Can we not? Do you find that the orchestra understands that? Of course, having so many people in the room. Was it that easy to work with? Well, I worked at a very deliberate process in, in the recording. Recording is different than rehearsing for a concert. What I was accomplishing on Fellowship, and actually on all the scores, Two Towers and Return of the King, is I would only record eight minutes of score a day in a six-hour period, which is a really slow pace. But because of that, it allowed me to fine-tune things like articulation, dynamics, color. As Andy mentioned, different, you know, using different mallets. I was able to go at a very deliberate pace to really achieve these beautiful recordings. And just to get some perspective then, I mean, it is a mighty, mighty soundtrack. How long did it take to record the whole thing? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, Return of the King, it took months. Yeah. I mean, I was recording maybe two, three months for Return of the King. Every day in those months? Uh, four or five days a week. And it, went, it did go on for months, yeah. There was so much music and, and it was done at this slower pace. So it, it did take time. But I guess then you really do get the sound that you want. That, that's fascinating. And so within that process then, Howard... Technology, does that ever, a software, does that ever come into play or it is all sort of what you've heard and imagined and then you hear it next with the orchestra? I'm working in two worlds. I'm working in a 19th century world where <laughs> I am now. There's very little technology involved in the composition process. It's just pencil and paper. I do the orchestration in ink and then it goes into the computers and then it gets ready for recording. So I, I basically can work away from the technology almost up to the printing of the parts, which is now done with computers. But once the recording is finished, then it goes into a, an editing stage, which is very technical. And we take a, quite a long time 
like a classical recording and edit edit the pieces and then they have to be mixed and put into the film so there's a lot of technology you're going from 19th century to the 21st century you spoke there about it being pen to paper that's a lot of work on you do you have a team that works with you in that early stage of writing or is it is it all on you just the pencil just you and the pencil yeah and i work with a copyist okay so every day as i write then i send it to the copyist and he copies it i did a lot of recordings with the lpo where i would write the score in new york in a kind of small stage format like an eight by ten like a letter size score we did Ed Wood like that and a lot of scores like that. And then I would just, at that point, fax the parts to Vic Frazier who <laughs> copied them, who was a great person to work with. Mm. And uh, Homer also introduced me to Vic. And then the parts would go right to the stand and I would fly from New York to London, go to the studio and start conducting. So there was very little in-between process. I just worked with a music editor and a copyist and now I have Alan Frey, who helps with the organization of the recordings. You know, just the planning out of it, because that takes a lot of time. Absolutely. No, thank you for breaking that down for us and for, for the listeners, because it really is fascinating to hear. When you're composing, do you have the film with you as well? Or do you know the storyline? What are you also trying to sort of accompany? I dream it. I don't look at it face on until I'm at the scoring stage. When I'm composing, I like to do it in a very relaxed way, away from the film. I just watch the film. I remember it like you would as a participant in the audience. Mm. And I remember and can recall the scenes. And then I like to write the pieces. So I work in stages. I build up the composition in one folder, themes, motifs, all musical ideas go over here. And then when I'm ready to score the film, I take these compositional ideas and start placing them into the film. I understand. And for you, Andy, did those themes help you know where you were when you were playing the pieces? Did that help? Yeah, to a certain extent. I always remember, I was thinking about it the other day. I mean, when we turned up for the first session, we didn't really know what was ahead of us, the sort of immense scale of the project. We'd done some films with Howard. They often were about a week or something. And, of course, it became obvious quite early that, of course, for Howard, he, he has to sort of have the whole arc, probably of the whole three films, you know, th several years hence, because there are themes that run right through all three films. And, and I suppose over the course of the first few days, first few weeks, you started to hear the, these themes. And we're an orchestra that does a lot of Wagner. You know, we're just halfway through a ring cycle. And there's this thing of leitmotifs and themes that and how the composer manipulates a theme to put out a different character or a different scenario for that character. That sort of feel, what it does is it binds, one ring to bind them all, it binds, <laughs> <laughs> it binds the film together so there's this sort of continuity and I think that really helps the audience through what are very long films, you know. And, yeah, we did start to really... I mean, it's quite obvious early on what are the Hobbits and what are maybe sort of... Uh, the, whatever they're called, the death thing is, can't remember. And he said Dementors, so that's a bit Harry Potter. There's this lovely folky music for the Hobbits and there's some very dark, terrifying music for other things. So, you know, it becomes obvious as you're playing it what whereabouts you are in the film. And, of course, I had read the books at some point in my youth, you know, so 
It was a very exciting thing to see it all evolving. Howard mentions Vic. We remember Vic very fondly, and he did produce the best printed music. It was beautiful and always right. And so for us, it's just a case of you put a piece of music up and you play it. But as you do that, you're developing a feel for the style and everything. And how about for you, Paul? Were you familiar with the books? Did you know what you were playing along to? And does the orchestra get to see any of the film before? I didn't read the books. I did eventually, as Andy said, found time during the lockdown to finally watch the films. And if I'm honest, a lot of the time I didn't really have a clue what was going on. <laughs> but I enjoyed the music very much, yeah. And it's, it's sort of the, the, those themes, of course, when the first time you play them, you don't know that we're going to be playing them a year or two later. Mm. And it gets to the point where it's hard to imagine those themes never existed. They're, they're sort of so much yeah. part of culture now, you know. Yeah. And Howard, Andy mentioned Wagner there. I know you, you have your style and you have sort of the colours that you're trying to paint, but do you ever reference other composers and sort of what composers really inspire you? Well, this score to Lord of the Rings took almost four years to write, orchestrate and to conduct. And over that period, my listening and influences, you could hear it in the scores. Like in the beginning, my interest was more in Italian opera and you can hear more Puccini and Verdi, I think, in those early scores. And then later on, by the time I got to Return of the King, you hear a bit of Bruckner, Wagner was starting to creep in. It's such a long piece. You know, the score was about 12 or 13 hours that we recorded. And it's essentially a 19th century world. There's lots of modernisms in the score. I used extended, some extended techniques. I used uh, the manifesto, which was like a uh, kind of improvisational technique developed from the 50s from the Polish avant-garde. But, you know, certain things would creep into my writing. I wasn't consciously looking for anything, but things would show up. So I went with it. I like it. And Paul, the, the fellowship theme is heard quite a lot going through the film and also elsewhere. Was that one of your favourite moments to play or do you have a favourite moment with it? Yeah, it has, to, it has to be that bit, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the first theme that I would think of as a trumpet player when, when I think of Lord of the Rings. And what do you like about it? What is it that really gets you? There's something slightly sort of heroic, noble, bold about it. Again, it sort of just lends itself to the trumpet. So well, I just love the the sound you can bring to it. It's sort of a, a darkness combined with brilliance, and it's sort of an uplifting theme. But it's actually quite modal, I think. Is that right, Howard? I mean, sort of, if you think about it, it's, it's sort of more minor than major, but it feels it feels uplifting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is it about yeah. the music that does that, Howard? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just writing from my heart, so. Certain things appear. Some of it is not that intellectual. I'm writing sometimes on a purely emotional level and not analyzing it. Like the Wagner or any influences, they were analyzed a little later. As I'm writing it, I'm not really, I'm working more emotionally. It's really lovely to hear. I mean, there's no trickery afoot then. It really is just about what you want to say in the music. And with that being said, when things like sound effects and sound design comes into play, Howard, uh, do you have a say in how that works with your music? Because you've heard it in a certain way. The Fellowship theme and the Shire theme I wrote in the year 2000 
after a visit, my first visit to New Zealand, I came back and wrote those two themes. I used them, you know, in, in the first recordings of Fellowship of the Ring. I didn't work with a sound designer. I have on other films, but I didn't on uh, Lord of the Rings. Peter Jackson, the director, kept things kind of separate, the music and the, and the sound design. So I wasn't really using that in the film in the way I might have in other scores I've done, like Silence of the Lambs or Seven, you know, where it's been part of the creative process. process. Well, talk to me a bit more about the recording. Andy, it must have been quite a shell shock to, to experience this type of recording where it was sort of really into the detail and sort of you knew it was going to be a long process. What was it like for the orchestra adapting to that? The most interesting thing, what Howard was saying, that we took a lot of time over it. There was a lot of time. I mean, that was part of the sense of the vastness of the project. I remember as a student, film scores for me, they were like cautionary tales to make sure you practice your sight reading. So I was always told, you know, film sessions go like that, and if you don't sight read it straight, you know, you're out and all that. When we started this project, it was amazing that there was really time to play things, think about it. Howard would we'd play something, he'd go into the recording booth, the box, as we call it. Sometimes he'd be in there, for, it seems, for ages, you know, and we're sitting around, and then he'd come out and maybe make very minor changes, and then we'd do it again. And it was, like Howard said, eight minutes a day. It was a sort of lovely way to actually really get into, rather than crashing through things, like sometimes you have to do because of the time of restrictions. And also, you know, watching things develop and change, I noticed, I don't know whether this was a conscious thing on Howard's part, but, you know, at the beginning of the film, a lot of things we were playing were on folky instruments. We were playing on barans and things like that because The Hobbit and everything was quite nice, you know. And, and that, those rhythms are sort of pulsating quavers. Gradually, by the time we were on the last film, the barans had gone and we were on these sort of military drums. But it was the same sort of pulse in the music, but it had changed instrument. It fitted perfectly the sort of curve of this tale that these lovely little hobbits were now right in the thick of the most sort of epic struggle. Yes. So things like that, the recordings were really interesting. Of course, there were times when we were really sort of starting with a, almost a blank canvas in terms of the instruments and having to sort of try things, and that was fun. And so am I right in thinking then, Paul, for this process, there wasn't a rehearsal as such. You just go straight into recording and then there was this collaboration. Yeah, and we saw like rehearse, record. I think we read through right. stuff, maybe one or two tweaks, and then and then record it. As Andy just said, Howard would often come back having listened to it, say, "Oh, clarinets, leave it out this time, horns, tassets," and then go and have another listen. And then sometimes you'd come back, Howard, and say, "Actually, horns, put that back in. I do want it." You know, <laughs> and it was this wonderful sense of the project. It will take however long it takes yeah. mm. to get it right. Not sort of looking at your watches thinking, I've got half an hour. How refreshing. Let's get it down, yeah, exactly. But then for you, Howard, what was happening in the box? I mean, the orchestra all know that you went off somewhere. What what was happening for you and what was happening in your mind at the time? Well, it was a way to work with Peter Jackson, who was in, in the control room, the box, and confer with him. And it was also a way to hear a playback and the speakers, you know, in more detail than I could from the podium. Although the way I was working, I mean, this, the Rings recordings were all live. There's no overdose, there's no electronics or anything. There's nothing plugged in. It's a completely live recording. Yeah. The orchestra was 96 pieces for every session. 
exactly the same, 60 strings with eight basses, and it was always five horns, French horns. You know, it was the exact same instrumentation for each film consistently. And the imagery of the LPO, which I had worked with over those 15 years, that came into play in the orchestration because I could orchestrate exactly the sound that I knew for the brass. I could orchestrate for Paul, orchestrate for Andy exactly because I had heard them for years before. Paul mentioned, you know, rehearsing. When we came back from hiatus to start working on, I think, Two Towers, or it could have been Return of the King, I'm not sure, but uh, we recorded The Lighting of the Beacons, and the take you hear in the film was the first take. Wow. wow. It had so much it. energy. Mm. It was amazing take. And thank you, Paul. Thank you, Andy. Because <laughs> it was so fantastic, a take. Yeah. That's a very emotional moment here, how we did this room. The musicians didn't know that. Yeah. And just to know... That's one of the great moments in the film. I mean, it's oh. such an epic yeah. cinematography across the hilltops in yeah. New Zealand. Amazing. Oh, absolutely brilliant. So, Paul, how does it feel for you knowing that Howard has sort of seen you playing with the orchestra, knows the members of the orchestra throughout those years, and as he's writing this epic film score, he's thinking of you personally. How does that feel? Well, a a few years after we made the film, someone brought in a book which was about the making of The Lord of the Rings, and they pointed out a bit where Howard said that I I know the players, I write for them. I think he he might have mentioned... Sue Bowling, our wonderful Coronglay player, I think. And, and I was one of them. And, and I can tell you that was a very special moment. Yeah. Doug Adams wrote a book about the music called The Music of the Lord of the Rings Films. He's a journalist from Illinois. He came to my studio, my archive in uh, New York for nine years. Every <laughs> summer he would come for a month or two and study the archive because I had written so much music, and he went through it all. And then he wrote the book. And so it's pretty extensive. And he describes over a 100 motifs and themes and goes through each film in, in a lot of detail. So if you're interested in the music and the process, it's a good book. I recommend that book. I think everyone's going to be going and looking for a copy of that now. So what's it called? It's called The Music of the Lord of the Rings. The Music of the Lord of the Rings films. It's by Doug Adams. Right. And how about recording in different studios, Howard? Obviously, you talked about how sound is so important. You've written what is in your heart and what's in your mind. And so how you're hearing the sound coming back at you must be very important. That's an interesting question. There was an interesting process that went on because the original recordings for Lord of the Rings were done in New Zealand, not by the LPO. It was done by the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. They recorded The Minds of Moria. It's a 26-minute piece of the first film and we did that because Peter Jackson wanted to take to the Cannes Film Festival Ah. kind of as a promotional piece yes but the recording was so good it actually is the recording in the film and then when I went to London to work with the LPO I tried to match the sound of the studio in New Zealand which was a town hall it was in Wellington And so I went to Watford Town Hall outside of London to match the Town Hall of New Zealand. In the Commonwealth, they built these community-type halls for politics and social events. and And they're all over the world. I mean, wherever England had stretched, 
You know, they're in Canada, and they're all basically, they're somewhat similar. So Watford became our home. And then Abbey Road became Watford when I couldn't get into Watford because they were having a dance or bingo or something. And so I went to Abbey Road. But everything, you know, kind of followed that way back to New Zealand. That's really interesting. And so did Abbey Road do it for you then? Or if you could have had Watford, you would have stayed there? Well, Abbey Road was great. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we used, Abbey Road was our home base in terms of uh, production. Yes. I mean, I was doing a lot of recording. Even though I was only doing eight minutes a day, I was doing a lot of takes and a lot of stuff had to be edited. The goal was to make the most beautiful, perfect recordings we could in the time we had. So I slowed the pace down and went to try to get perfection. Those recordings are so beautiful now. They've held up to, you know, 20 years or so. And that's partly just to the beauty of the playing, the great orchestra, you know, beautiful theater we recorded in. But then even sort of striving for that perfection, it's hard work, right? It's it's hard work for the orchestra, of course, because you you really want to be able to give Howard what he's asking for. But for you as well, Howard, you're conducting the orchestra as well as making these changes. I'm guessing sort of making changes after the session as well, ready to be on the stands the next morning. How do you... I'd I'd go back to my hotel after the recording and and work for another four or five hours Mm -hmm before sleeping to get sometimes I'd rewrite things overnight if I wasn't happy and I'd come back the next day with a new orchestration or a new composition so I was continually putting out work at one point I think I had four or five coffees working at night wow because I was producing so much music and here on LPO Offstage, we speak about the physicality of making music, you know, for the violinists, the position they have to hold themselves in to play for that amount of time. The same with all the different players in the orchestra. But for you as well, how did you, as a human, you are still human, how did you manage to sustain that? Pure will, really. You know, <laughs> it was just pure will. Sometimes I would think, oh, I, I could use some help here and I'd reach for the phone and then I'd go, no, just do it yourself. Like at this point, because I could do it, I had to just focus on the job at hand. And sometimes I would write very quickly and I figured, oh, I'll rewrite this another time. But a lot of times I never did. The time never came. I just did the best I could, you know, in the time that I had. Sometimes it was short, but I just created the bars and filled them in no matter what. And how important was it for you to have to conduct it? Could you see yourself getting somebody in to conduct it and still making those changes on the side, or did you need to be on the podium? Well, the conducting was a direct relation to the orchestra. It wasn't broken telephone. If I put somebody else on the podium, I'd have to talk to them, Mm. and then they would talk to the orchestra. And so I was trying to get this direct connection to the players so I could just really create the sound in the room. The physics of the room was very important to me in terms of where the mics were placed and the overall sound of the recording. And so I had to balance all of that in the room. Sometimes I would move the players around in the room to create certain effects different for different types of orchestration. I think we did something with distant trumpets, Paul, where we kind of moved you at Watford that's right, into I a back that, yeah. hall to create a distant effect. 
and things like that. So, What do you remember about that process, Paul? Did you, was that still an experimentation, sort of how far do you go? What room should you be in? If I'm honest, I can't remember in any great detail. Just, I think we were in the corridor somewhere. That's right. We? Yeah. At Watford, yeah. And of course, we can't really tell what sound's coming into the hall. We, we just do what we're told. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> One thing I remember about Paul is that we used B-flat trumpets for fellowship and two towers. And when we got to Return of the King, we used C trumpets. So we actually, ah, that, actually changed. That's, that's not quite accurate. Um, that, okay, well, because I, I, I often relay this story. For the first film, about a week before, we got a message asking for sea trumpets. Mm. Now I haven't got a sea trumpet. So I don't play. I think them. I use them on Fellowship, though. Maybe, Did but uh, I, I remember in the. I think it was the second film. About a week before, we got a message asking for F trumpets. Oh, right, I did use F, yes. Um, which they sort of hadn't been used for the last hundred years or so, <laughs> and you're more likely to see them in a, a museum. But um, I remember speaking to Howard and, and asking where you'd got that idea from. I think you said you'd been listening to, I think it was Bruckner 7, recording the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, and you said that was the dark sound that you're after. Yeah. And you looked in the score, it said three trumpets in F which is, yeah. I think, where, where that request from. And I said, well, actually, they wouldn't have been using F trumpets. They would have been using rotary valve, German rotary valve trumpets. And at which point so you said, oh, can we, can we get rotary valve trumpets? I said, we'll do our best, yeah. So we did use the rotary valves in Return of the King. Yeah, that's right. So we, yeah. we had B-flat trumpets, B-flat rotary valve trumpets and F trumpets, and we used sort of any combination of them yeah. from day to day. That is fascinating. I love that. <laughs> and again, you know, when we speak about collaboration, just having that conversation with the musician themselves and seeing, you know, how is it done? I think that is... And the, yeah, and the attention to detail. Yes. That's what it's, uh, what it's about, I think. Now, we've heard today that you both, Andy and Paul, sort of really got to take it all in nine or ten years later mm. over lockdown. Howard, do you listen... To the, obviously, you listen to it in the process, but do you then go and watch the film and listen to the music, or is it something that once you've handed in your parts, you're done? I haven't in a long time, but I did a tour with the symphony, Lord of the Rings Symphony, a six-movement piece. It's about two hours and ten minutes, and I did about 50 concerts of the symphony in 2004 all over the world. I was in the Far East, Canada all through America, England, a lot in Europe, Germany, Denmark, Spain. So I traveled a lot with the piece. And then it's gone to film, you know, working with the film. And I don't conduct those pieces, but I have gone to some of the concerts occasionally when I'm in town in Paris or in New York. And how does it feel to see that work come together, having the movie there and having the orchestra playing your compositions? Well, the most beautiful recording I heard was the LPO playing it at Albert Hall. That was really sensational. That was about 20 years ago, I think. But that was a fantastic night. And that was hearing the music in its continuity. I wasn't on the podium. They were playing it to the film. It was just like a perfect evening of a, of a concert. I could shut my eyes and hear the entire score. That must be high praise, no? 
High praise indeed. And for you, Paul, I mean, how demanding was it to play those live screenings in such a huge venue like the Royal Albert Hall? How can I put it? It's what we do. Being in Watford, we could have been in the Albert Hall, but we, we give our best every time and, and uh, just get on with it, really. And do any of those conversations that you've spoken about, Andy, you know, working through what percussion to use, how to use it, how to hit it, what the sound that you're looking for, do those conversations come back into play when you're playing it live? Yeah. Do you remember the process? Well, I had one of those lovely moments where it's a guy called Ludwig Vicky who conducts a lot of this tour of the film, and he's lovely, we get on. But I had this wonderful moment where he sort of said to me, oh, I think this should be on this instrument, and I was able to say, actually, mate, I did the film, <laughs> and it, we did it on this, which um, you kind of want one of those in your career. Um, <laughs> How so, told me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I can remember some conversations really clearly with Howard because they're special events in a way. And when you do something and then you do go and watch a film and you hear that and you think, oh, yeah, well, that's when we turned the snare drums upside down for the spider or that's when we were bashing pianos with chains and that's the other bit where we were doing this and the other. I mean, the, the section in, I think it's, it's been a while, Isengard with Saruman when he's building the Uruk-hai army and they're... they're there's the sort of sound of the forges making the swords. I mean, we were whacking sheets of metal bell plates with hammers for extended periods. I mean, we don't often get tired because often what we're doing is kind of short-lived, but clouting these things and for bars at a time. And my colleague, the principal percussion before me, Rachel Gledhill, had a glove on and chains around her fist, so she looked like she's got a knuckle duster on her. She was... <laughs> punching the strings of a beaten up old grand piano so those sort of things as you're doing it you think well I wonder what this is going to sound like and then when you watch it on the film it's terrifying yes. and it's absolutely right and for that bit and the music was in 5-4 sort of uncomfortable and there's punching music and this gravelly tune going over the top mind-blowing so yeah and the conversations that decide well is it that bell plate or should I hit it with this hammer or whatever they do stay with you yeah, yeah. and how would for you for knowing that the piece is done, the film is released, it's epic, people are performing it and playing it all over the place. Was it finally finished for you with all those hours and sleepless nights? Were you, were you happy? Was there sort of like one more session? I wish I could have just got that. Yeah, they had to kind of drag me away from it <laughs> at the end. I had written so much and I was so into working on it every day that they had to get me to stop. They had to pull me away from the desk. Each film took a year, and then we did an extended version, which took another three months. So all told, it was three years and nine months of work, uh, writing and uh, orchestrating, conducting it. And then, I mean, the LPO recently performed the Lord of the Rings Symphony at the Southbank Centre. How right. do you condense all of that passion and searching and working from nine hours of music into a single symphony. How do you go about that? Yeah, good editing, essentially. John Malacheri, the conductor, helped me. I, I needed another voice because I was trying to save so much of it. Mm. And I had to edit the symphony, which is a little over two hours from the 12 hours of music. But I'm, I'm quite happy with the editing. It's six movements, two movements for each of the books. I would have a, a question that might sort of end up being a tip for those listening. You are 
a genius in, in the music that we've heard and the things that you said today and the emotions that you've got through. But yet you still speak about listening to other people, collaborating with others, compromising on, on your ideas. How do you do that knowing what you're chasing? How do you make space for others' advice and opinions to come through? Well, it depends on, on what type of music you're working on. I mean, for concert pieces, I've written three concertos and an opera and two song cycles. I mean, those I pretty much just create on my own and they go to the stage and some of them work, some of them work <laughs> better than others. But I pretty much go on my own journey when I do that. When you work on films, films is a very collaborative process. There's a director, there's a cinematographer, an editor, there's production designers. I mean, there's a huge amount of people that work on a film. You could be influenced by the lighting director by how you put music into a scene, mm -hmm. you know, as to how the scenes lit. So even though you're not working directly with that person, you're still influenced by him. And so film is very collaborative and you, you learn to work creatively with other people it's part of the process. My background was in theater. So I grew up, you know, in repertory theater and I was used to working with different people with different opinions and things like that. And it's part of the process. And just goes to show that, you know, through collaboration and even working outside of your department, you said they're about the lighting and letting that influence you can result in, in great yeah. things. I'd like to sort of wrap up, if I can, with first you, Howard, directing the audience to give our listeners a bit of a nugget of something that they may not have heard about before in any of the films of Lord of the Rings, something to listen out for when they're watching or listening. There's a little tip of the hat at the end of Return of the King to Wagner. It's a little piece that I wrote for the end of De Valkyrie as a little kind of thank you for the process of the leitmotifs. Perfect. We'll listen out for that one. Andy, is there anything that you wanted to listen out for or a sound that the audience might hear that we don't know how you made that sound? I seem to remember whether the big spider in Return of the King, which I think is called Shellop, I remember turning the snare drums upside down and rattling directly onto the snares. But I think I've mentioned Isengard, all the metal. The other thing is the Ents, which are the trees that come to life. We spent a lot of time with log drums and low, very low marimbas and, and a sort of very woody sound. So that's, again, I mean, it's pretty direct painting of using wood instruments for trees, but it's really effective. Fantastic. I'll look out for that. And uh, Paul, what should we look out for from you? <laughs> or a great memory that you had in, in the process? During the first film, the orchestra went uh, on tour to Romania. Hmm. That's right. For a, a day or two. Mm. But actually, I wasn't there because um, I was an expectant father for the first time on the 4th of September. So for that whole week, every time Andrew, our orchestra manager, turned up, I thought it might be to say, right, you need to get home. Need to get home. <laughs> so we had all sorts of contingency plans about who could come in to cover for me and, and whether or not I'd go to Romania. And uh, we had a cut-off point. I think it was the Wednesday... Two or three days before, a decision had to be made and the decision was made that I, I would stay at home, which was just as well because uh, my daughter was born on the, uh, on the 11th of September, that fateful day. Oh, mm. wow. That's right, I remember that. Yeah. And then we came back and we had a session the next day and that was very 
difficult, very moving, and we had a couple of minutes silence. It was very difficult to then go back in, you know, and for Howard as well because he was his, his home t- city. And yes. I remember it's a very we pressed on and we played some amazing music, which is a good and well, it's a good answer to things like that, isn't it? Well, first of all, congratulations to you on the birth of your daughter, but also Howard. How was that sort of bringing everybody back together, obviously having the minute silence and really trying to process as much as you could within the session? Did it affect your creativity at all, having 9-11 happen during the recording? I lived uh, a few blocks from the towers for years, so I felt very connected to the people who were going to the tower and working there. I would see them on the street. I'd take my daughter to school and I'd see them. And so it was very emotional. It was an incredibly emotional time. I mean, and I was still writing. And I think you hear that in uh, the ending of Fellowship of the Ring. Mm -hmm. Especially the scene where Sam and Frodo are on the beach and the last scenes of that film are very emotional for me, difficult. No, oh, thank you so much for sharing and definitely one that we'll listen out for as well. It's been fantastic to speak to you, Howard. Thank you for, for thank sharing you. with us and sharing the process and also to Andy and Paul for just telling us what it was like to record it. It's a pleasure, thank you. Good to see you, Howard. Thank you, yeah. you too. Thank you, everyone. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Howard Shaw, Andy Barkley and Paul Benison for giving a true insight into one of the most iconic film soundtracks of all time. Please do get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod and thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage coming up soon and I look forward to joining you then. Mm-hmm.